Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Great American Senior Show. I'm your gray-haired host, Sam Yates. Today, our Great American Senior Show is coming to you from the world headquarters of the Midway Specialty Care Center. It's an amazing not-for-profit organization that literally has touched the lives of people around the world based on its philosophy and its outreach. And we'll talk more about that in, in a short while, but first... Dr. Modi Ramgapal, who is our special guest today. And that name is one that you're going to get to know very, very well because he's one of the premier physicians in infectious disease and recognized as an expert in that field. And Dr. Ramgapal, uh, welcome to the program today. I'm so pleased to meet you in person. Well, thank you, Sam. It's indeed a privilege and an honor to be here. Let, let's start with you. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Tell me uh, about your credentials and a little of what makes you tick. Thank you so much for that. Um, so I was born in a British British colonial country, British Guyana at the time it was called. And I spent my formative years going to going through the education system there. Growing up in this tropical country, uh, you know, surrounded by rainforests, you become very familiar with terms such as malaria and then later on dengue and a lot, of course, diarrheal diseases. I was infected at a very early age with meningitis, severe headaches. And so through, through the course of my, you know, my educational years, I always pondered the thought of one day I could pro probably become a physician. My father was a lawyer at the time. Also had, if I was the last of five children and he always wanted one of us to go into medicine, the rest went into business finance and even law. So when I received an opportunity to go to medical school, I grasped it. And I actually went to University of the West Indies in Jamaica. This is in the mid eighties. This was just around the time, the turn of the era of HIV AIDS. This was the first real global pandemic we had seen for quite a long time. And I do recall even the first patient I saw as a medical student in Jamaica was an HIV patient. Little did I realize that years later, I would really get myself in the infectious disease. But I think what, intrigued me a lot was that here is these invisible pathogens that get into our system. We had, you know, microscopes that we can see, look at gram stains and bacteria, but we didn't have the viral technology that we can look back on today and say, wow, look how the world has changed in the world of infectious disease. And the thing that was interesting as well, here's an antibiotic or a treatment you can start. And within a matter of hours or days, your patient will get better, they'll recover and they'll go home. This is somewhat a lot different from a lot of the other medicine, you know, the medical fields like oncology and cardiology, et cetera. So I truly believe that if I can take care of a patient, save a life and save that life very quickly and effectively, it was something that was exciting and rewarding. At that time, saving the life, was that a major task? Because that was in the early stages of HIV. Was it uh, of, uh, something that was a monumental task that you saw? So HIV was definitely a monumental task. We saw here is, we didn't even, couldn't even call it HIV till a few years later. We didn't even understand how to quantify the virus. The PCR technology evolved in the mid and the late eighties. And then we started to recognize how can we actually treat. So in the early days, we'd see patients presenting with oral candidiasis, wasting, TB, malaria. And you will ask the question, what can I do for that patient? We had AZT initially in the early nineties. So after I finished my medical school, I worked in the Bahamas for a few years. And while I was in the Bahamas, I was dedicated to the infectious disease section. 
And I felt that you couldn't do anything really, unfortunately, wrong because everything you would do is to try to save his life that we had in front of us. And you see a lot of young people dying, but the death was slow. It was two weeks and months later. You'll see the wasting and, the, and everything as that presented. And there was a level of futility at that time. We didn't have the highly active retroviral treatment that we have today. We had very rudimentary medications, as we would call it, AZT, and then there was 3TC and some other medications came along. So I did my infectious disease fellowship at the University of Miami in the mid-90s. And that is where I began to understand this is, I mean, a lot, very complex, very emotionally draining. I would remember feeling so drained that I didn't even want to see another HIV patient again. I preferred to go into a different area of infectious disease, such as transplant infectious disease or something else. So that's where, but at that time in the mid-90s, I became involved in clinical research. And that actually spurred my life in a different direction, recognizing that here's a new medication and treatment that we can use. So HIV is actually was in retrospect at the time a debilitating, devastating pandemic. But now it actually led us to the next generation. I always said HIV has led us to COVID. Without HIV, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to grasp the coronavirus story as much. We wouldn't be able to diagnose it very quickly and recognize it very quickly. Explain a little bit more about that because that is intriguing that all of your background and the research in HIV created an open mind. Yeah, so in the mid-90s, when you ask us, you would think about, well, how can we save lives? What can we treat? Here's cytomegalovirus in an HIV patient. Here's the complex HIV cases you would see, tuberculosis, multidrug resistant, and all the, the nuances surrounding that. And then we begin to recognize that the virus is the problem, not just these co-infections. How can we now kill this virus, bring it down, stop it from replicating, and rebuild the immune system by stopping the virus? So in the mid-90s, early 2000s, I became involved in clinical trials and clinical research. And over the last 15 years, I've been pretty much involved in every single new HIV medication that's come to the market. But that has opened up my mind because now I recognize this is something I couldn't do in Guyana. This is something I couldn't do in the Caribbean. But here I am in the United States, and I can do a lot more than I could, could have done anywhere else in the world. So I started my own research center, which is right next door. But again, coming back to the question is that you start to understand the science behind this. It's not just about throwing a medication. Hey, it works. Let's see if it works. No, it's about understanding data collection, understanding phase one studies, the time it takes to move from phase one to two to three. Yes. Of course, uh, in with with the the current COVID situation, if we spin that statement around and reverse the thought process, can we take some of the same research, the mRNA, and take a look at HIV AIDS? in the current time frame? So that's a great question. Actually, we are about to do that. There are going to be two interesting studies, one at NIH, and we'll probably be doing our own study in the next several months, Look at mRNA in the matter of enhancing your immunity, enhancing your antibodies against HIV and the virus. So I think we're getting close to that mindset. The whole world of mRNA technology has kind of enlightened us. We knew that there was this technology 15, 20 years ago. We understood it. Even this goes back a little further. If you look at the history of mRNA, understanding the historical perspective of it. And there's 
is one of the fascinating things about infectious disease. You have to learn about the history of it. It's not just like, oh, forget what happened a hundred years ago. We look back at understanding malaria, understanding, you know, vaccine history, smallpox, chickenpox. Now getting to this current era was important to, to, to follow the, the path. And here's now mRNA is the new generation. And was I skeptical of it at the beginning? Yes, I was. I didn't, I didn't, you know, here's this new technology. Here is what we can actually enhance your mimic a virus, mimic the strategy and, and trick the immune system to produce antibodies that's going to stop the virus or stop the infections. And I think this is truly a future, futuristic strategy. And I think it's an exciting and, and, and incredible concept that we will be using on you much more in the next, next generation or two. Now, I've heard that trick the body's immune system many, many, many times. But I was recently listening to a uh, a press briefing with the WHO and the word train the body <laughs> system was used. So is it, which is it, which is more uh, appropriate or which is it that we're more headed in a direction of tricking or training? It's training. So uh, tricking is what we would initially have conceptualized it to be. Because that's our fault. Now we look at it. Well, it's not tricking anymore. We're training it. We're actually telling the body how to do this in a better way. And is that the true? Is that the right way of expressing it too? I think it may be the right way of saying that we're actually training the body, the body's immune system, the T cells, the immunological mechanism, training it to produce the right amount of, of immunity at the given time it needs to do that. I was all prepared to ask you a series of questions about making that transition from HIV AIDS into COVID, but you've been there all along. Yeah, that's true as well. So I do remember listening to the news of, of COVID around December and I was, wow, I said, this, that really, you know, was very challenging. And then in January, I was in Guyana and I was given a lecture of infectious disease at, at the, at the Marriott Hotel. And I told the audience that, a month ago, something is happening, and this is coronavirus. This is a this is probably the worst thing we'll see in our generation. This is probably the worst thing we're going to experience in the next five to ten years. And people, you know, they were saying, "Well, really?" I mean, we are in totally disbelief. And then four to six weeks later, I was about to go to my conference in Boston with the retroviral meeting, and everything was shut down. And then here it is, coronavirus is in the United States and it's about to explode. But then you look back at that, that story is here's Wuhan, here's shutting down Wuhan, and now the virus has hit us. And here was I at you know, Tradition Medical Center and St. Lucie Medical Center waiting for those first cases and not really truly understanding what's it going to look like. But it was very scary. It was very fearful, even having been through HIV, been through cases of dengue and seen, I've been infected with dengue before, seen malaria, seen almost every infectious disease I've seen in the last 20, 30, MRSA, VRE, all the bacterial resistant infections. And then here we go, we go with a virus, a novel virus that we knew from SARS that it could be, you know, transmittable in the air by contact. But did we really expect it to be airborne? No, I don't think so. But Here's the data. It's spreading rapidly. So it had to be airborne. And that's what made it even more frightening or even concerning. Were we doing the right things? Were we wearing our, are we going to get the right strategies? And then what was, was also interesting is that a lot of people are getting sick, but not a lot of people are dying. So we're given oxygen. Then we learned that. And then here's a new, entirely new concept of research is that what is the new drugs? Here's the virus. We have 20, 30 different medications that can potentially work. Which one are we going to use? 
you got to understand your pharmacokinetics. You got to understand the pharmacodynamics. How do these medications, are they going to kill enough virus and bring it down quickly enough so that your immune system can take over? So these are all the challenges we face very upfront. And then we, I heard, you know, there's a drug called remdesivir that Gilead was used, had developed against Ebola virus. So I called my friend at Gilead and said, can we get remdesivir here? Sure. So one of our hospitals became one of the sites for remdesivir. And that was, now he started patient coming. So I think it became exciting for me. Here I'm in the midst of a pandemic or not even in the midst, in the early stage of a pandemic. And looking back at the, what I learned from HIV, in the 80s and the 90s, I think this was a really uh, fascinating world for me. A lot of people look at it differently than I did. My family members said, why are you even doing this? You know, why don't you, why you get yourself exposed? But, but it, I think it's a comfort level by infectious disease physician that we are accustomed to dealing with the unknown. Anytime we see patients, we don't know what's going on until you know what's going on. And that's what we saw in the next three to six months with coronavirus. We started to recognize, here's what we need to do. Here's what we can you know, get patients in. Here's how we can prevent. So as an infectious disease physician, the strategy for us is to treat, not necessarily to prevent, not necessarily to do epidemiological data, unless you went into that arm of infectious disease. So when we were doing the testing, and I said, we need to set up a lab very quickly because our community was struggling. I got called from my friends and said, it takes a week to get a lab result back. So I said, okay, no, I got to get a PCR machine. Went ahead, bought a PCR, PCR machine, set up a quick lab for a community. We're doing up to 100 tests per day in our lab. It's like, and this is start from zero to, to 16, like quickly, days. And then as time went by, here's vaccine. We said, let's, the midway model is let's get our patients first. Let's get vaccines for our community. We went to the churches, we went to the, into the toughly neglected patients to get those patients engaged into care. And now we're dealing with Regeneron, getting that out there for patients. So my knowledge of HIV really, truly helped me to get to this point. Without that understanding of virology, without that understanding of developing treatment and research, I don't think I've got, we would have gotten there as quickly as we have gotten. I think we're fortunate to have you and you have had that background. One of the things that, uh, and I forget where I read it, uh, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, my wife says if you subscribe to one more newspaper, they're going to find you in the driveway instead of the newspaper. Yeah. But uh, you've used the term COVID-21. How did that term come about? So the, because in the last three months, I mean, you look back, it was settling. COVID-19 was the original variant of coronavirus. And that was a totally different virus, the way it behaves to the current virus. So the virus is mutated, it's now become a Delta strain, as we call it. The WHO classifies it, depending on the Greek alphabet, as a Delta strain. But when you look at the clinical behavior of this virus, it's a lot different from COVID-19. COVID-19 may look at the mortality, the morbidity numbers, even though it spread, it didn't spread as much as this virus. It doesn't replicate as the Delta strain. And when I look at what I've seen in the last four to six weeks in the hospital, it's a different story. It's a hard and a tougher story. When I'm seeing 25 year olds and 30 year olds and 35 year olds and 40 year olds really truly sick. COVID-19, a year and a half ago, we saw the elderly. We saw a lot in the 70s and 80s and, and the late 60s. We didn't see the 30s and 40 year olds now. And I'm seeing these patients become very infected very quickly and they progress very quickly. They could be breathing fine now and six hours later on the ventilator. Like just today, that happened to a patient of mine. This morning he woke up, he's been hardly in any oxygen, right to be discharged, and boom, he's intubated now. We're discussing hospice with him and his family, and he's only 50 years old. Wow. I just saw a 23-year-old patient just collapse yesterday and requiring intubation. 
This was not what we saw two, two years ago. We're seeing younger children with as, asthmatics, obesity. But the thing that really is consistent between the two COVID-19 and 21 is that obesity remains a dominant story, and then as, as well as diabetes. But the younger generation and the behavior of this new virus is somewhat lot different from the original variants that came out of Wuhan. And I think that's why I'm calling it but I, because I, I think that if you keep calling it COVID-19, people say, oh, that's a weaker virus. Ch- saying it's COVID-21 really emphasized the fact that this is behaving differently. It's a much more aggressive virus. It's a much more, it's a deadly virus if you don't have any treatment. Sure, we're using remdesivir. Sure, we're using steroids. Sure, we're using every other, you know, IL-6 inhibitors, J- JK inhibitors. Without those, a lot more people would probably die. Our conversation with Dr. Modi Ramkapal will continue with part two of our special interview. I'm Sam Yates, your gray-haired host of the Great American Senior Show. And that's the way our program ends. <laughs>